Hey y'all, I'm Melanie. And I'm Jason. And you're listening to the Old North State Podcast. We're bringing you on a deep dive into all things North Carolina. Hello. Hello. Good morning. Um, good afternoon. And good evening. I hope everyone is uh, still alive after Snowpocalypse 2022. Or It's not going to have happened by the time this episode comes out. I hope everyone is gearing up for Snowpocalypse 2022. I hope you've got your bread and milk. For your milk sandwiches. Yes. Um, welcome back. We're happy to see everyone again. Yes, because we can see all of your bright, shiny faces. That's, that's the beauty of podcasts. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have an excellent episode for you today. Yeah, it's going to be a two-parter. A two-parter. Um, Our first two-parter. Yeah. We're going to be talking about... The first battle of Fort Fisher. Of course, there were two battles. So we will be discussing the first one this week and the second one next week. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But first... Um, <laughs> Our little county game that we were playing last week, we didn't ever actually say where Alamance County came, comes from. Yeah, we're going to go through all 100 counties in North, yeah. Carolina, North Carolina over, I guess, the next two years. Yeah, um, but today I'll do two since last week I just said Alamance and I didn't say where it came from. But Al- the name Alamance comes from the Battle of Alamance. Um, which took place in May 1771, which was the final battle of the Regulator Movement. Um, and it is also derived from the local Native American word meaning blue clay found in the Great Alamance Creek. Cool. And mm-hmm. then what's the, the second one? The next county in alphabetical order is Alexander County. And it is named after William J. Alexander, member of the legislature and speaker of the House of North Carolina. Speaker of the North Carolina House of Commons. There you go. That was a mouthful. Good old politicians. Yeah. Naming the land. (laughs) As they do. Um, Yeah, before we get started, happy 50th episode. Oh, yeah. Happy 50th episode. Yeah. Halfway to 100. We have been officially doing this for a year now. Yeah. It's popped up on my Snapchat stories this morning of us recording in the closet. (laughs) You mean the studio? Yeah. Studio one. We're now in studio two. Yes. Which is the guest bedroom. All right. So, want to do this thing? Yeah. Cool. So, during the Civil War, the Confederacy heavily relied on its ports to bring in supplies to a heavily agricultural society. The South just did not have the type of industry it needed to sustain its armies. So, the ports were essentially, and they were lifelines to the foreign support the Confederates needed. Known as the Gibraltar of the Confederacy, Wilmington was a very important Confederate port for several reasons. First, It was the only port still accessible to blockade runners who traveled there from Bermuda, the Bahamas, and Nova Scotia, where cotton and tobacco Mm -hmm. were traded for food, clothing, and arms. Um, The blockade runner is a hotel in Wrightsville Beach. Fun fact. 
Um, you could also say Bermuda Bahama. Come on, pretty mama. Yeah. You could say that. <laughs> uh, with the help of Wilmington and Walden Railroad uh, and the Cape Fear River, the port provided direct access of goods to the Confederate capital of Richmond. Once Mobile, Alabama, the last Gulf of Mexico port fell, um, that was in August 1864, Wilmington was the last major Atlantic port and the last direct supply route to General Robert E. Lee's Army of Northern Virginia. Before Mobile, the Union hadn't really concentrated on trying to capture Wilmington because they were focused on other ports like Charleston and New Bern. I think it's Mobile. Yeah? Or like Mobile? Mobile? Mobile. Yeah. I uh, I don't feel the need to it's Alabama. Who pronounce cares? Exactly. Yeah, we're a North Carolina podcast, not Alabama. Ooh, a cat whisker. Um, Wilmington was also vital to President Abraham Lincoln's success in 1864 election. Northern merchants were pressuring him because privateers out of Wilmington were constantly coming into northern waters and raiding their ships. However, once General Sherman's army took Atlanta on September 2nd, 1864, Lincoln's re-election was practically in the bag, so Wilmington's capture fell on the back burner. Another reason why it was vital for the Union to take Wilmington was uh, so that they could expand their federal blockade. To do so, they needed to capture nearby Fort Fisher, and Fort Fisher is located 18 miles south of Wilmington and is situated on a long peninsula called Federal Point, and this is between the Atlantic Ocean and the Cape Fear River. The fort consisted of a huge L-shaped earthwork that encompassed 14,500 feet and was surrounded by a 10-foot parapet with an extensive network of bomb-proofs, most of which were 32-foot high mounds with interior rooms. The fort was made mostly of sand and earth, which was unique compared to the other older forts, which were constructed from brick. This worked great for absorbing the shock of explosives. That's going to come in handy later. There were many obstructions around the fort, including landmines and deep ditches. It had about 50 cannons and a garrison of 1,400 troops that were commanded by Colonel William Lamb. My uh, grandma's last name is Lamb. Not spelled like that, no. Is that your, your family's? No, we're Mick Lamb. Oh, that's right. Well, anyways, um, have you been to Fort Fisher? Like in, um, in person? We went on a field trip many moons ago. Um, yep, and that's the tea. I went only really one time when I was at a UNCW. Um, I think I had a day off of work, mm -hmm. and I just like needed something to do. So I drove out there, which typically, typically I did not do because who needs Carolina Beach when Wrightsville's right there? Yeah, who needs it? Um, but it was nice. I walked around. I didn't go into the, any of the historical sites, really, because um, it was closed. But it was cool. It's, yeah, just a bunch of mounds. And then... Uh, they have an aquarium. I, I have a friend who I grew up with who got married there. Nice. Yeah, the Fort Fisher Aquarium. Mm-hmm. That was on the app when we were looking for... Um, that was on the app. I forgot. Wedding venues. Yeah. But yeah, so when Colonel Lamb got to Fort Fisher in 1862, the fort only had a few sand batteries with less than two dozen guns. Lamb oversaw the expansion of the fort, 
which was inspired by Malakoff Tower in Sebastopol, Russia, <laughs> that was used in the Crimea Crimean War. So, okay, I'm going to stop you for a second because somebody out here will laugh at this. Um, so I took a uh, Russian history class in college, and we talked a lot about the Crimean War. And I always had in my head, every time I went to that class, Crimea River by Justin Timberlake. I was just thinking of that, too. <laughs> so I always, every time I hear that song, I think of the Crimean War and my <laughs> Russian history teacher. How nice. I wonder if there is a river. Well, there's got to be. In Crimea. Yeah, absolutely. All right. <laughs> yep. So, as many as 1,000 men at the time, including at least 500 enslaved and freed African Americans, worked on expanding the fort. By January 1865, Fort Fisher had a mile of sea defense and a third of a mile of land defense. I was listening to Cape Fear Unearthed um, earlier, which is another podcast about Wilmington and the, you know, Eastern North Carolina, and they actually had mentioned that um, the Lumbee tribe helped make the fort as well. Oh. And when I say helped, I don't know if that was... Forcibly? Yeah. Um, wow, I didn't know that. But it's part of their history, too. So, although capturing Wilmington had been put on a pause for the time being, Lieutenant Ulysses S. Grant still thought it was a good idea. He wrote to General Sherman that he wanted to send a force of between six and 10,000 men there, the two men agreed that if Grant could capture Wilmington and if Sherman could capture Savannah, Sherman then can take all of the Carolinas and it would be the beginning of the end of the Confederacy. Secretary of the Navy Gideon Wells began devising a campaign against Wilmington and came up with two options. The first was a landing at Old Inlet and the capture of Smith's Island by a force of 6,000 men. The second and more favorable option was an attack against Fort Fisher, involving 10,000 troops. They figured if they landed at Federal Point at Fort Fisher, they could get closer to Wilmington. By September 1864, rumors and news of an attack on Wilmington was leaked to the newspapers. I wonder who did that. <laughs> the Confederacy figured an attack on either Charleston or Wilmington was imminent after Mobile... Mobile, Alabama. Alabama fell regardless of when it happened. At the time, Cape Fear District consisted of 100 miles of shoreline being covered by only about 2,400 troops, most of whom had seen little to no combat. Yeah, I read that they had only really done like, like duels, <laughs> like individual duels. Yeah, that and like running laps and yeah. stuff. That's really, that's like just maybe some out. jumping jacks and push ups. Yeah. Major General W.H.C. Whiting feared the attack would come out of New Bern since the Union had occupied the city since the spring of 1862. Which we did an episode on last March or April. Last year. Which you can go listen to mm -hmm. if you feel the need. Um, that was the Sideburns episode. Yeah. Good times. You got to go listen to figure out what we're talking about. We yeah, don't. me too. <laughs> we talk about sideburns. Uh, so he figured the attack would either strike Smith's Island or Fort Fisher. After some convincing, North Carolina Governor Zebulon Vance finally agreed to send reinforcements to the Cape Fear, and by October, General Braxton Bragg was put in charge of the district. 
Assigned to the Union attack of Fort Fisher was Army General or Army Major General Benjamin Butler and his Army of the James with the assistance of the Navy under Rear Admiral David Dixon Porter. A mouthful. Too many names. Pick one. I, I try to keep the names to a minimum because I know they can get confusing, but some of these people are important. So, um, General Benjamin Button, I mean Butler, <laughs> I'm kidding, commanded oh. <laughs> the military's Department of Virginia and North Carolina. Lieutenant General Grant originally designated one of Butler's subordinates to lead the expedition, but Butler demanded he lead the troops himself and was given the command of 6,500 men. What a mistake. Mm. Admiral Porter was young and arrogant, but a very competent man and spent the entirety of the fall preparing for the attack. So he says, the, aver the overall plan was simple. They would take an old ship, run it to the run it aground, and blow it up under the in order to damage the Fort Fisher and throw the Confederates off long enough to capture the fort. So kinda like a Oh my gosh. Trojan horse situation. Yeah. But explosives instead of little sneaky snakes. Because we're America. I was reading it and I was like, this seems like something they would do in like the Fast and the Furious. <laughs> So, over 60 Union Navy ships and Army transport ships would meet at Hampton Road in Virginia. The Army troops would board the transport and wait. The Navy would leave first to serve as monitors, giving themselves a half-day head start before the transports. The ships would refuel at Beaufort and then meet the transports at Fort Fisher to execute their plan. They would then explode the one ship, and army troops would land under the cover of the warships. Many doubted the plan would work, including the ordnance experts and engineers, but President Lincoln and Admiral Porter both approved the plan, and they were like, hell yeah, man, we want to see this too. Yeah, so Lincoln approved it because, by I mean, by that point, he had already basically won the election. So he was like, all right, do whatever. But, were you going to say something? No. Okay. On November 26, 1864, the USS Louisiana was assigned to be the exploding ship. The Louisiana was an iron-hulled steamship that was used in blockades and in the Battle of Roanoke Island and the Battle of Elizabeth City in 1862. By this point, General Sherman's army had left a path of destruction throughout Georgia, so General Bragg and around 2,000 troops were sent to Georgia to help strengthen the Confederate defense. Once Ulysses S. Grant heard of the Cape Fear forces like that they had left, he grew impatient and realized it was now or never. On December 10, 1864, the Union prepared its over 60 ships to leave Hampton Road, but a winter storm hit and prevented them from leaving until December 14th. The Louisiana was able to leave on December 13th in tow by the Sassicus? Sassafras. Got it. Sassicus? and was bound for Beaufort while it was, where it was fitted with explosives and gunpowder. The other Union ships arrived at the rendezvous point four days later. The Navy took a little longer than expected to refuel at Beaufort, so General Butler's forces arrived at Fort Fisher first. The Navy arrived the next day on December 19th. Another storm with massive swells hit, forcing some of the ships to scatter and sending the Army transports back to Beaufort. The storm finally subsided on December 22nd, 
and Admiral Porter decided to start the attack without all of Butler's crew. Close to midnight, the Louisiana was towed close, close to Fort Fisher, uh, Fort Fisher's seawall. A crew lit the fuses on the explosives and kindled a fire at the aft of the boat. They set the explosives to go off at 1.18 a.m. and 24 seconds, and then escaped on small boats back to the tow ship. The explosives failed, but the fire on the aft worked its way up to the stern of the boat, and it blew up at 1.40 a.m. However, this is where things start to go south. Uh, the Louisiana was farther out than they thought it was, about 600 yards uh, offshore. I saw one account that said it was a mile offshore, which I think is absolutely ridiculous. Fort Fisher remained unharmed from the blast. Colonel Lamb actually woke up and thought that the ship had accidentally been run aground and that a magazine inside had just exploded. How, like... How do we have the, the seconds that they were expecting? I don't know. 1 a.m., 18 minutes and 24 seconds when they're using, like, we're going to light this thing on fire, mm -hmm. and eventually it's going to light this thing on fire. Um, that like, is... Yeah. This is just... It's wild the things that, like, make their way through history. Yeah. Like, that small of a detail. And I wonder if it was, like, low tide or something, and that's why oh. they ran aground so... I mean, that makes sense to me, but you would think that they would think about that. Or maybe they wouldn't. Who knows? Um, I'm going to keep my comment to myself. That's how you know that a man <laughs> made up this plan because he didn't take into account for everything. Hmm. <laughs> Just kidding. Kind of. So, under heavy fog the next morning... Uh... Yeah, okay. Under heavy fog the next morning, on which was Christmas Eve, the Union Navy moved closer to shore and began bombarding the fort with artillery from 300, 635 guns. Their goal was to destroy the earthworks and force the garrison to surrender. Over the course of four or five hours, the Union shot 10,000 shells, and Admiral Porter thought that it was a great success. Four coastal gun carriages were disabled, one light artillery caisson, a few of the barracks, and Colonel Lamb's headquarters were all destroyed. But overall, they didn't really do that much damage because, again, they're literally just shooting at the ground since this big fort, old mounds. Yeah, just big mounds. So it's, it's kind of really weren't doing anything. So at the fort, there were only 23 Confederate casualties. The Union suffered 45 casualties from guns exploding on board their ships. The Confederates were also able to make direct hits on three of the ships. That night, the transports carrying the Union Army troops finally arrived. And on Christmas Day, Porter and Butler devised a plan for battle. The Navy would resume their bombardment and the army would land under their cover, so that's what they did. The Navy shot 10,000 rounds, while a mere 600 rounds were shot back at them. Colonel Lamb was concerned about their lack of ammunition and ordered that the guns only be fired every half hour unless they were under a direct land assault. So after seeing what the gunfire had done the day before, Lamb wasn't really too concerned about anything, getting, anything else getting damaged. The Union, however, took this as a sign that all of the Confederate guns had been destroyed. Um, 
Union Brigadier General Aldebert Ames, his division consisting of about 500 men, were first ashore while the Navy continued their gunfire and were able to capture a battery protecting the beach just north of Fort Fisher. They also accepted a surrender of the 4th and 8th North Carolina Junior Reserve Battalions, which had been cut off by the Union landing. Ames then sent a small brigade of about um, 250 men to the fort to see if they would be able to attack and found that the wall was only slightly defended. Um, and I learned of an interesting story. So they had one guy climb the telegraph pole to cut the telegraph line. And this is when they realized that Fort Fisher was not your typical, like, four-walled fort. They only realized that it was just, like, the two kind of pointed. Mm -hmm. So that's when they were like, oh. And they didn't see anybody, like, out and about. So they were like, oh, it's unguarded. So the troops were very prepared to attack. But Ames decided to hold off in part because they were able to tell how little damage had already been inflicted and because nighttime was approaching and they didn't want, like, a sneak attack. Mm. So at dark, the naval bombardment ceased and the Union line that was on shore advanced on Fort Fisher. And this is when Colonel Lamb gave his men the signal to open fire and this absolutely shocked the Union confusion nobody knew what to do because they just thought that there was like nobody there yeah they and that thought that they were winning yeah they <laughs> thought they were winning they thought that they didn't have any ammo left so everybody was running around scared because they didn't know what was happening so at this point general butler was convinced that the fort was too strong for what they had planned and he knew that it was lar largely undamaged he had gotten word that uh, the Confederate hoax division, led by General Bragg, with 1,300 troops, had come back from Georgia and were just a few miles north of the fort at Sugarloaf. Um, and so he, so that meant that they had hoax to the north and Fort Fisher to the south. So they were kind of sandwiched, a little little Confederate racist sandwich. <laughs> Um, General Butler also was alerted that another winter storm was brewing off coast. Just like right now. Well, actually, it's not coming from the coast. But, yes. but a storm's coming. A storm is a coming. <laughs> so Butler remembered what happened at the Battle of Fort Wagner in July of 1863 when a vastly outnumbered group of Confederate soldiers were able to inflict a ton of damage. And um, he did not want that to happen at Fort Fisher. And I looked that battle up. And um, there were 1,800 Confederate soldiers versus 5,000 Union soldiers, and uh, there were over 1,500 Union casualties. That's uh, that's not good. That's 30%. So, yeah, it wasn't it was not very good. So, Butler decided it would be best to abort the mission and declared the fort impregnable. Interesting choice of words. That's. Literally what every source I read said that he declared it impregnable. So that's what I went with. It's <laughs> <laughs> the ideology behind that is, uh, you know, it's interesting. I don't make the words. And here we are <laughs> repeating them. Yep. So Butler signaled his troops to retreat. And after some more confusion, they heeded his orders. The problem is that he left so quickly, over 600 men were left stranded on shore for the next two days. 
So it was all of these men and all of the uh, other men that they had captured. Just on shore. General Bragg's troops arrived at Fort Fisher the next morning on December 27th and met the stranded Union soldiers. Instead of killing or capturing them, he just decided to let them go. And then they were soon rescued from shore. And um, General Whiting and company, they were pissed about that. They were like, I can't believe you've done this. <laughs> vine reference. That's a vine reference. Jason laughed. Just so I did knows. laugh. Sorry. Inaudibly. So. <laughs> I, was, I was trying to think of the reason why they would do that. Me not having the, you know, the mindset of a civil war general. Which is good. Right. And um, <laughs> do you ever think about like what these people would be like in modern times. I think their heads would literally explode if they ever had to respond to an email. You know? They'd be like, I need some opium to do this. They, um... But anyways, I was thinking... There and... are people who think like this. It was called the uh, siege on the Capitol building. <laughs> uh, well, I, I just mean like, you know, with their technology um, back then. But... So uh, my thinking is that maybe they just didn't have, like, the supplies to take in, what was it, 500 or 600, 600. men Yeah, stranded. I mean, they didn't because it was – the garrison at Fort Fisher was only 1,400 men, so – Yeah, so they were, like – Adding 600 more. You're just pretty much, like, housing a militia just waiting for them to uprise. So they're, yeah. like, actually, you know, head on over to Wilmington. Go on to Blue Post. Get yourself a drink. <laughs> Your boys will pick you up. <laughs> and we'll see you next week. <laughs> Wouldn't that be funny if that's what they really did? That's <laughs> what I would do. Um, I could just I could just imagine like if this were to happen now, somebody standing on the beach texting them, being like, um <laughs> Did y'all leave? Did you <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. So when it was over, um five Confederates were killed, fifty six wounded, and another six hundred captured. The Union suffered 78 casualties, and that does not include one man who drowned when he was trying to return to the ships. How sad. Right. Um, Y'all knew he couldn't swim. So, it's... <laughs> I I do think that that number includes the 45 that died um, on the boats when their guns were exploding. So, like, they kind of just <laughs> accidentally killed their own people. Yeah, I think um, this whole attack was led by uh, a Kyle... You know, I agree. Just, just some dude bro whose dad got him a nice little general job. Mm -hmm. Abraham Lincoln's like, oh, you're this guy's kid. Yeah, of course I'll let you, you know, <laughs> have this army to do this siege. All you've done is play Call of Duty. You know, that's fine. You that's got this. Fine. And what, what did he come up with? <laughs> Trying to blow up a fort with a boat. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wild. Yep. So Fort Fisher's defenses remained intact and the damage that was done got repaired very quickly because, again, it's literally just mounds of earth. Uh, Wilmington remained open to blockade runners, allowing the Confederacy to still get vital supplies, which meant that the Union blockade that was in place was pretty much useless. General Butler became a complete embarrassment to the Union after this. Like, he, I mean, I so here's a quote from President Lincoln. Let me pull it up real quick. Honestly, it was kind of funny. So, on December 28th, 
This is on the historicsites.nc.gov Fort Fisher website. Um, it says, President Abraham Lincoln queries Grant. If there be no objection, please tell me what you now understand of the Wilmington expedition, present and prospective. And Grant replied, this is Ulysses S. Grant. The Wilmington expedition has proven a gross and culpable failure. Many of the troops are now back here in Virginia. Delays and free talk of the object of the expedition enabled the enemy to move troops to Wilmington to defeat it. After the expedition sailed from Fort Monroe, three days of fine weather were squandered, during which the enemy was without a force to protect himself. Who is to blame? I hope will be known. End quote. <laughs> he's like, I didn't do it. Yeah, he's like, it wasn't me. So, um, Grant saw this retreat as disobedience, and President Lincoln saw no need to keep him that high in the ranks since he had just won his re-election, so he's like, I don't care anymore. Be gone. Uh, Butler was officially relieved of his position on January 8th, 1865, and was replaced by Major General Alfred Terry, who would lead a successful attack on Fort Fisher one week later. And we will return one week later to talk about it. Yes. And I have some family members who were at the second battle one of whom was killed. R.I.P. Yeah. Well, I mean, he was a Confederate soldier, so. Well, when, still. When in Rome. Yeah. Okay. Well, but, this was an interesting one. Yeah. Um, you know, next time you're at the beach, think about a old Civil War ship coming up, exploding 600 yards away from the coast. Yeah. It'll be like fireworks. Like yeah. a little fireworks show, you know? And then you can tell your friends about the failed attempt to capture Fort Fisher. Yeah. Because that's what we talk to our friends about. Yeah, absolutely. We talk about it all the time. Anyway. Did we do anything North Carolina-y lately? No. Went to Ocean Isle? We did go to Ocean Isle. That, that was fun. It was spooky and foggy. It was spooky and foggy. It was very foggy. I've never seen the beach like that before. Ooh, I didn't see the beach because it was that's foggy. That's true. That's true. Maybe, <laughs> maybe that's why. Maybe because it was really foggy after that storm and it was winter time. So maybe that's the type of fog that they were dealing with. I don't know. Mm. I wasn't there, but it was very thick fog. Thick. All right. Yeah, she thick. Well, <laughs> I got nothing else to share with Me the neither. class. See everybody next week. We hope everyone's having a good start to the year. Yes. And, uh, yeah, get energized. We got a, another year of uh, North Carolina history for you. Yep. And don't forget, go get your milk and bread. They're bringing snow. Yeah. Drive safe. Gotta get the milk and bread. Sources for today's episode can be found on our website at anchor.fm slash oldnorthstatepod. If you want to send us a topic suggestion, a funny story, or if you just want to say hi, you can email us at oldnorthstatepod at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Instagram at oldnorthstatepod. Cheers, y'all!